What has Christ done for you? Maybe jot that down in your notes and be thinking about it as I share this morning. As we continue our series on the church, and I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 records like this is, the, the, this is after the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ into heaven, and it's the day of Pentecost. Jews from all over the Roman Empire have traveled to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate, to take part in this festival. And already gathered in Jerusalem is this group of about 120 Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus had told them to wait here in Jerusalem. I've got, uh, I've got a surprise for you, so to speak. It's big. Then suddenly, on that day of Pentecost, tongues of fire appeared to them and and rested on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues, other languages. Really, the languages of those who were visiting from around the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. And and when a crowd gathered to witness this amazing sight, Peter begins explaining what's taking place, and he begins preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And following his sermon, which you should read, we're not going to, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read this. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There's some fruit. There's a harvest there. And what follows in verses 42 through 47 is a description, really, of the early church. Early church life, verse 42, seems to be this uh, summary statement, which is then unpacked in more detail in 43 through 47. In verse 42, we read, so following the 3,000 souls, we read, and they, these new believers, along with the 120, devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching, second, the fellowship, third, to the breaking of bread, and fourth, the prayers. Now, in our series on the church... We're going to devote a week to each one of these uh, four topics. This week, we're going to talk about uh, the breaking of bread. But before we get there, as part of an introduction to the series and this message, I want us to look at two aspects of early church life just found in those two verses, in that verse 41 and 42 that we just looked at. First, I want us to notice the growth of the early church. We just read it, 41 Peter proclaims the gospel, so those who received the word were baptized, and there was added to that day 3,000 souls. Remember when we began the day, there was 120 believers, so in one day the church grows to 3,120 approximately. Scripture doesn't say how, how many remained in Jerusalem. These are people not from Jerusalem, many of them how long they remained, but it implies uh, that they remained at least for a time because the verses that follow are a description of what takes place in Jerusalem after these 3,000 people are saved. And what I want us to notice is that growth didn't stop at 3,000. In verse 47, after the description of, of what's going on in the church, we read, "...and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." More fruit. The church continues to grow. And notice how it grows. The Lord is adding to their number. The Lord Himself, as Jesus said in in Matthew 16, uh, 18, is building His church. The Lord is growing His body. The church is the body of Christ. 
And Christ is the one that grows his body. So verse, verses 41 and 47 highlight this, this growth of the church. They're bookends sort of uh, to this passage. And, and in between the bookends is a description of what the church that the Lord was building did. Now it seems to me, it's not too great of a stretch to say to us today at Bridges, if we want to see the Lord add to our number day by day those who are being saved, then we would do well to pay attention to the kind of church that He adds to. How they lived, how they acted towards one another. And like I said, today and over the next several weeks, we'll be examining these different aspects of early church life, but the, the first and the, and the main thing I want us to see, I think this is the, where all the rest sprouts from about the early church. The church that the Lord is adding to daily is their heart. The heart of the early church. As I, as I said in verse 42, is the summary of early church life. And the summary begins with, and they devoted themselves to. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They were devoted. This speaks to the heart, where their heart was, what they cared about. They just didn't do these activities. It wasn't just, okay, we're going to do this thing today. We're going to get some apostles teaching today. Okay, tomorrow we're going to do a little fellowship. Check, check, done. They were devoted to these activities. The word devoted in Greek contains the ideas of, of earnestness, of, of perseverance through difficulty even of diligence, of continuing in. In fact, the NASB emphasizes this by using the phrase continually devoting themselves to. It wasn't just a one-time, short-lived devotion. It was continual, all the time, all-consuming, in many ways, devotion. And what did it look like? Well, if you're truly, continually devoted to something, it's, it's a major priority in your life, wouldn't you say? When, when busyness comes into their life, when tiredness comes into their life, when difficulty comes into their life, what do they, what do they get rid of? You know, we have to prioritize our lives, right? Some things have to go. We can't do everything. What do we remove? What do we put on the back burner? What do we put on the shelf? Uh, those are not the things. The things we're devoted to are not the things that we put on the back burner. They're not the things that we put on the shelf. If because of tiredness or busyness, you skip reading your Bible or prayer, these, these core things that we need to do to maintain our relationship with God, then you are not devoted to those things. The things we're devoted to remain. As all other things fall away, what you're devoted to is what you have left. Even in the midst of tiredness and busyness, difficulty and pain. I was trying to think of a, a good picture, an illustration of what it means to be continually devoting yourself to something. And the thing that came to my mind, it seems to be happening more. I'm not watching any movies, just so you know. I don't have time. But these movies that I've watched before come to my mind. And one of my favorite sports movies came to my mind. It was the best picture in 1976. Anyone know? Right, Rocky. In the movie, Rocky's uh, transformation illustrates the kind of devotion we're talking about. Now, let me ask a question. Uh, those of you under 30, have you seen Rocky? Yes? 
It's a classic, of course. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. Uh, after service, uh, devote yourself to renting Rocky or getting it somewhere and watching it. Anyway, uh, it's, it's this transformation of this guy, and it's, it shows devotion. He, he began the movie as a bum. You're a bum, Rock. Out of shape, loser. Just trying to get by, having a few fights. He didn't care if he won or lost. But, but then he was given this, this mission to fight the heavyweight champion of the world. Kind of far-fetched, I know. And he devoted himself to this mission. And his devotion affected every area of his life. He ate differently. Remember the raw eggs. Every morning, he slept differently, early to bed, early to rise, and he trained continually, punching raw meat. That, that was the thing. And he, with Adrian and, and, and Mickey's help, transformed his life. Why? Because he was continually devoted to his mission of becoming the best boxer he could possibly be. So we've seen what the early church is devoted to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. We, we, we know what Rocky was devoted to. So let me ask you this. What are you truly devoted to? What takes priority in your life? What remains when other things fall away? What do you make sacrifices for? What do you lose sleep for? What are the priorities in your life? Think about your answer. Be honest with yourself if, if you can't be with others. Even, even jot down, maybe you have some invisible ink, I don't know, a few things. What are you devoted to? Is it a certain TV show, Can't Miss the Walking Dead? They give you lots of breaks, I don't know if you want, sorry. A certain sports team or sports in general, are you a devoted fan? Today's the first Sunday of, of football season. Is your mind already uh, watching the games, anticipating the games I'll watch when I get home? Maybe you're devoted to a, a video game or, or something. Maybe you're devoted to social media. Got to post this kind of trivial event in my life, but I got I to gotta post it. Maybe you're devoted to what we, good things even. Good, your job, your family, your friends. Maybe you're just devoted to yourself, your health. Your financial security, your pleasure. Now remember what we talked about last week, first week of our series on uh, the church, the God-glorifying church. And one of the things we said was that God created us, that our purpose in life is to glorify God. Now ask yourself this, do the things you're devoted to, the things you give up other things for, help to fulfill your purpose? Do they help you glorify God? Is God glorified by the things you've chosen to devote your life to? If the answer is yes, then great. Continue to devote yourself to those things. But if the answer is no, then uh, an evaluation of your life, of the things you're devoted to, is, is in order. Because the reality is, we can only devote ourselves to a certain number of things. And when the question comes, what will I sacrifice? Will it be my TV show, my sports team, my financial security? Or will it be the things of God, the things that glorify God, the things that the Bible teaches us to devote ourselves to? Will I sacrifice my God-given purpose for something else? Now, the early church was clearly devoted to the things of God. And over the next several weeks, again, we'll look at these things. And as we do, I'd call you to think about and pray about 
what for the glory of God He wants you to be devoted to. And let me make you a promise. No matter what you're devoted to right now, if you'll begin to devote yourself to the things we'll be talking about, the things of God, to the things uh, of His church, of His body, to the things that bring Him glory, then I promise you, no hesitation here, I promise you, your joy, your satisfaction, your happiness in this life will increase. I'm not saying you'll get less suffering and pain. I'm saying your joy and your happiness and your satisfaction will increase because no matter what you, uh, what or who you're devoted to now, if it's not God and if it's not His glory, it cannot, it will never bring joy and satisfaction into your life. So for your good, I urge you, devote yourself to God and to His glory. And so that brings us to the first thing, the first area of devotion we'll talk about. And it's the breaking of bread together. And I'm not doing them necessarily in the order they come because I did glorifying God and then I wanted to have communion this week and this fits in with that. So again, Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Luke adds, that, Luke adds to this in verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This says two things, I think. Two, I mean, it probably says more, but two things I want to talk about this morning. Important things about the early church, what they were devoted to. First, the early church was clearly devoted to one another. The early church spent time together. They went to the temple. They're still Jews. They're still all Jews, but they went to the temple together. They went to church together, so to speak. They gathered, and they broke bread together. They ate together. They went to one another's homes. They shared their food with one another. They had glad and generous hearts towards one another. It wasn't a, you know, as we get more into that, they were having all things in common. They loved one another. It wasn't a duty to be together. It was a joy It seemed like uh, they were together almost daily. That was the kind of love the early Christians had for one another. And we'll talk more about this aspect of the early church when we get to the the message on fellowship. So first, but first, breaking bread is part of it means that they were devoted to one another. They devoted to spending time together. And second, the breaking of bread symbolizes or says they were devoted to remembering Christ. The early church remembered Christ together. This is our focus for today. I want us to see that the time they spent together, the, it seems a lot of time they spent together, they, uh, the time they broke bread together was centered on and in memory of Jesus Christ. They were a Christ-remembering church. Jesus, at the Last Supper, had given them instructions. Had given these instructions to His apostles, who now people are devoted to the apostles' teaching, so they're hearing these things. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, we read, And He, Jesus, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for, your do, for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Jesus took one of, uh, uh, of the things that all people do every day. Eating. 
breaking bread. You know, some cultures don't have bread, but everybody eats. But breaking bread is sort of a, a, a euphemism for eating, right? We broke bread together. And he called his disciples to use this daily thing as a way of remembering him. When we come together and share a meal, when we break bread together, remember me. So as the early church met together, they probably talked about stuff, right? News and weather, sports, the latest camel races, I don't know what. But at the heart of their togetherness was Jesus Christ. They understood that it was Jesus who brought them together. They were centered around Christ. It was Jesus who was at work in their lives. They were devoted to one another because they were devoted to Christ. And as they spent time together with Jesus at the center of their conversation, they learned from one another. They were encouraged by one another. And they grew in their faith. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so as we contemplate the early church as devotion to breaking bread together, we must ask ourselves, are we devoted to spending time with others in the body of Christ? And when we do, what, 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 what are we centered around? Is it Christ? Are our closest friends, the people, our closest friends, uh, the people we invite into our homes, are they the same people we go to, to church with? Because if we're going to continue in the Christian life, we desperately need one another. We cannot expect to have all our spiritual needs met on a Sunday morning. Now, again, I'm not saying don't invite non-believers into your homes. Of course, do that as well. But we need this. We need one another. And so let me take a moment and give a, a direct application here. Let me, let me put in a plug for a great place to begin developing these kind of uh, bread-breaking, if you will, Christ-remembering relationships. And that, that is our small groups, which begin coincidentally this week or not. In our, in our culture, where we don't uh, live in the same neighborhoods, where we spend so much time at our work and our hobbies and with our families, we don't spend time together as believers very much, getting to know one another in real ways, having genuine relationships with one another, learning Growing, praying, and worshiping, worshiping together. Facebook and texting do not count. I think for the early church, this breaking bread together was natural for them. It's part of their culture. But that's not our culture. And so we need help. And that's why many churches in our culture provide this structure known as small groups. Places where we can begin. They're a beginning, let me say. Begin to grow and pray and worship, and sometimes even, uh, if your host is generous, break bread together. I think the uh, Wednesday night at the Reese's, they break bread together every, every week. We used to do that at our house. It got a little difficult, but anyway. But these are places where you can develop lasting friendships. I can say with all honesty, my best friends, the people I call in times of difficulty, the people I call when I need prayer, are the people I've been in small groups with. And, and, and from those small groups develop 
other personal relationships. It's not, it's not just a once weekly. It's not just a program. It's a program that then can lead into just personal relationships with one another. So I'd encourage you, it's a practical application to breaking bread, to join one another in one of our small groups. Sign up. Come. If Sunday morning is the only regular time you spend with other believers, now Sunday morning is important. I spend a lot of time figuring out how to do this Sunday morning, so don't skip that. But it's not enough. The early church was devoted to the practice of day by day breaking bread together, spending time together, remembering Christ together. Now, because the church is filled with imperfect people, it wasn't long before this command to remember Christ through the breaking of bread was uh, abused. If you'd turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, here we see how the, I mean, we use this passage every week. Do you know it's a correction? It's the Apostle Paul correcting the abuses of the church in Corinth around this breaking of bread together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the, here's what we're going to see. And this is where uh, the, the, the communion, this breaking of bread, is called the Lord's Supper. The church in Corinth has been breaking bread together in an unworthy manner. When they came together, there were divisions. Don't know what those were about. They weren't waiting for one another before they ate. So some were not getting enough food, while others were making pigs out of themselves. And still others were coming drunk, if you can imagine. And so Paul rebukes them. He says in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You're not doing the Lord's Supper. This is where we get the term Lord's Supper, by the way. This is not the supper that the Lord uh, uh, prescribed. And what you're doing is not at all what the Lord had in mind when He commanded you to break bread in remembrance of Him. You aren't remembering or honoring Christ. You're, You're seeking to satisfy your own appetites. And so beginning in verse 23, Paul instructs them on how to properly remember Christ through the breaking of bread together. And what he does is remind them of what the Lord's Supper is all about. What, what, is meant, what it's meant to remind us of specifically. He begins with an introduction, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord had revealed to Paul in some way the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And now he's passing it on to the Corinthians. He's passing it on to us. First, the purpose of the Lord's Supper The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's willing sacrifice. Verse 23, For I I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Paul points back to to the first Lord's Supper, what we call the Last Supper. And he reminds us that Jesus was betrayed. He and His disciples had gathered in the, in the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal. But there was a traitor among them. Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas' action, get this, was not the reason for Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Verse 24, He says, This is My body which is for you. Jesus willingly gave, gave Himself to be a sacrifice 
for you and for me. He was not forced. He was not coerced. He knew what it meant. And, and, and he still willingly went to the cross. It's not in your notes. I was thinking about this passage this morning. I want to read it to you. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. This just makes it really clear. Jesus speaking, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. His death on the cross for our sins is the greatest gift ever given, and he gave it willingly. When he took on our sin or took our sins on upon himself, when he experienced the wrath of God, the wrath of God that was meant for us, and he took it upon himself. When he, in, in emotional and physical agony, cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? This was a sacrifice that is for those who put their trust in Him. And Jesus says, take some bread, uh, break it, and do this in remembrance of Me. Remember the sacrifice made for you. And remember what this sacrificial gift means for those who receive it. Because of this gift, you can be saved from eternal death, delivered from slavery to sin. Because of this gift, your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven You can be covered by the blood of Christ. You can be declared righteous, sinless before God. And therefore, because of this gift, remember that you are reconciled to God. Don't forget that before the sacrifice was made, because of our sin, we had no hope of relationship with God. But God's gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, provides reconciliation for those who trust in Him. We now can have and do have, if you've trusted in Christ, a relationship with the living God. Because of the gift of Christ's sacrificial death, we're saved. We're saved from eternal death. We're not delivered, we're delivered from slavery to sin, but praise the Lord, remember, we have relationship with the living God. So first, the Lord's Supper is about remembering Christ's willing sacrifice. And what it we remember it in the past. We remember His death, what He did. And we remember what, what it means for us today. And second, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our covenant with Christ. Verse 25. In the same way, also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. God had established a covenant with the nation Israel. It was a covenant in which He acted. He acted. God acted on their behalf. He was their God. They were His people. And as such, He asked for their obedience. And when Christ said, this cup is the new covenant, He was saying that He was establishing a different, a new covenant with those for whom He was to die upon the cross. It was a covenant based on the shedding of His blood. Now, we're more familiar with the idea of contracts than covenants. Often when we buy a, a house, we sell a house, we borrow money, we take a job, we are asked to sign a, a contract. This means we enter into a, an agreement according to the terms of the contract. 
A covenant is a similar idea. Paul's reminder to his readers was that they had entered into a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. In the, in the new covenant, Christ would provide for them salvation from eternal death. We've talked about this. Christ would provide forgiveness and deliverance from their sins. Christ would provide the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we enter into this new covenant, the covenant of His blood by faith, by putting our trust in the finished work of Christ. And one very important thing to remember about entering into this covenant, when you enter into the new covenant, when you metaphorically sign on the dotted line, you're, you're signing away your life to another. As Paul's made it clear in this same letter, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. You're bought with a price. This is what you do now. This is your life. Your life Your dev- life is now devoted to, to God's glory. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're not only remembering Christ's sacrificial death, we're also remembering that, that, that if we are to receive the benefits of that death, then we must enter into this covenant with Him. A covenant where Jesus gives us salvation, eternal life, deliverance from sins, relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, joy, uh, pleasures forevermore. And we give Him in return our very selves. We give Him our lives. So remember the, the new covenant. The covenant in which you were bought with a price. The price being the blood of Jesus Christ. So second, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our covenant with Christ. And third, finally, the Lord's Supper reminds us to proclaim Christ. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The, the Lord's Supper is more than just an, an, an internal church thing. It's more than just a sacrament, if you will. It's more than just a reminder to believers of what Jesus accomplished. It's also a proclamation to the world that Jesus died for them. Uh, Lloyd Ogilvie shares a story that illustrates this point. We don't often think of communion in this way. He writes, One Sunday night, I looked at the back of the sanctuary, he's a pastor, and saw a very large group of visitors who had come to the service from the International Seaman Center located on the ship channel. Ships from all over the world docked there, and I realized that those who were visiting came from many different countries and in all probability were very limited in their understanding of English. To make matters even worse, it was the night on which a large part of the service was devoted to observing the Lord's Supper. Consequently, I was very surprised later when I received a letter from the chaplain who had, brought the, who had brought them telling me how very meaningful the service had been to them. In the letter, he told how their limited English had made it hard for them to understand my sermon, but that they were able to grasp clearly the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. As Christ had anticipated, they had followed the sermon with their eyes." In the Lord's Supper, Christ gave the church another way of preaching the gospel. It's a picture. A way for the eyes to see as well as for the ears to hear. The Lord's Supper pictures the heart of the gospel. That Jesus came into the world and His body was broken and His blood was shed that the world might come into relationship with God. And so application, I think, here for us is not to shy away from from bringing people to church who don't know Christ, even even on Communion Sunday, 
Let them see that picture of what Christ has done for them. And then, and then maybe they won't understand everything, but then that opens up a door for a conversation about the gospel. Remember to proclaim Christ. Amen? So today, we've seen the importance of being a Christ-remembering church, I hope. How Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that we might remember Him, that we might remember His willing sacrifice, that we might remember our covenant with Him. And finally, that we might remember to proclaim the gospel to others. You see that the Lord's Supper, breaking bread, uh, communion, is all about coming to remember who Christ is and what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's why communion is so important. It continues to remind us uh, who are so forgetful of the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. And we forgetful people, we the body of Christ, I believe need this so much. Because to the extent we forget Christ, to the extent we think that church, uh, that our Christian life is about anything but Christ, to the extent we think that church is about activities and programs, to the extent we think that church is about uh, filling this building, then we've lost what it means to be Christians, to be the body of Christ. We've lost the focus of who we are. We've lost the focus of our purpose. And I think the the communion time centers us on that. We must be at our very heart for the glory of God, a Christ-remembering, Christ-centered church proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in all that we do. So would you pray with me that we would be that kind of church? Father God, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, Lord. I pray that we would, we would spend time together, Lord. That we would break bread together that we would know one another and we would love one another, and that time we spend together would be centered around you, about remembering who you are and what you've done in our lives. Lord, thank you so much for all you've given us. Lord, help us to remember, help us to grow deeper in love with you as we remember all you've given us. In Christ's name, amen. Now normally, uh, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, Together, we allow a time of silence, right? A time to get our hearts right b- before God, and I, that's very appropriate. But today, I'd like us to prepare our hearts in a, in a different way. I think this may uh, better represent even what the early church did as they broke bread together. So instead of silence, I'm going to ask you guys to do something for me. Uh, to form groups... Of three or four people. Five if you have to, two if you must. Just get together in these groups. And in your groups, and, and I'll, I'll tell you when to start. And in your groups, I'd like you to remember Christ together. I'd like us to answer the question I gave you at the beginning of this message. What has Christ done for you? I hope the message itself has given you some Hints in that direction. His willing sacrifice. His new covenant. The relationship with God you have. But but we need to personalize that for ourselves. So you can share how Christ saved you or how He continues to sustain you. You can share uh, what His willing sacrifice means for you. Or how being in a covenant relationship with God has transformed you. 
I want us to remember Christ together this morning. Now, I know this might be a little difficult for some. And if you're visiting today, unless you're a missionary, because you got to do this, man. Uh, you, can, you can just listen and, and reflect on what others people, there's no pressure. You do, don't have to share. I, I'd like you to get into a group, though, and just hear. I want this time to be honoring, uh, worshiping, and glorifying Christ together. And once each person in your group is shared, so this is, there's two instructions here, by the way. So that was the first one. You're going to get in groups and you're going to share answer to that question. And then once you've done that, once everybody has sufficiently shared, then I'd like your group, as a group, to go to one of these four tables, one of the four corners, and share in communion together. Just each take a cup and a bread, and then have someone pray, thanking God for Christ, and partake together, and then return to your seat so another, uh, another group can come to that table. Is that, is that clear? I know this is a little weird. Not weird. I don't think it's weird. Abnormal. Is that the same thing as weird? Uh, no. Different. Okay. And so once you've finished sharing, then return to your seats. And then Chad and the worship team will come up and lead us in our final song. So, okay? So form your little groups and answer that question and then partake in communion together.